Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 12. Do you want to get started with web scraping using Python? Are you concerned about the potential legal implications? What are the tools that are required? And what are some of the best practices? This week on the show, we have Kimberly Fessel to discuss her excellent tutorial created for PyCon 2020 online titled, It's Officially Legal, So Let's Scrape the Web. We discuss getting started with web scraping and cover tools and techniques. Kimberly gives advice on finding elements inside of the HTML and techniques for cleaning your data. She also notes a recent change to the legal landscape regarding scraping the web. Kimberly is a senior data scientist at Metis Data Science Bootcamp in New York City. She also holds a PhD in applied mathematics. We talk a bit about her switch from academia to data science and discuss her passion for data storytelling and visualizations. All right, let's get started. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. Interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hi, Kimberly. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, so I wanted to get a little background on your bootcamp. Is the name Metis? Is that right? The Metis bootcamp? Yeah, I teach full time at an immersive bootcamp called Metis, and we teach data science. So, all kinds of different aspects from, of data science. It is 12 weeks long, and the students do uh, end up doing five separate individual projects throughout the course of those 12 weeks. Cool. Do you guys kind of steer them in a particular direction for the projects? Yeah, I mean, the projects have themes, I'll say that. Um, <laughs> the first one is kind of more of exploratory data analysis. The second one, regression. And then we have classification and NLP. And the final project is just totally up to them, whatever they want to do. Oh, cool. But that's most of the barriers we put on it. Other than that, they're really allowed to take that in kind of whatever directions they want. You use the word NLP. Could you go into that a little bit? Because I think we're going to talk about that more as we go into web scraping. Yeah. Definitely. That's that's totally my favorite project. So that's natural language processing. So anytime that you're working with text data and converting that into numbers to be analyzed, that's NLP. Okay, cool. Partly why I wanted you to come on the podcast was to talk a little bit about the PyCon tutorial that you did as kind of a jumping off point for our conversation about web scraping. But I noticed on your slides that it mentioned that that was one of the roles that you had at different ad agencies that you were doing NLP. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so before joining Metis as an instructor, I was doing data science at various ad agencies. And, you know, some of my favorite projects, I was mostly working on natural language processing. And a lot of those projects involved, you know, combining data from various different sources. Our whole goal was basically to build a picture of kind of what the customer journey looks like. So that might be like, you know, taking information from their search patterns and, the types of reviews that customers leave and all those sort of things and like kind of combining it into kind of more of a holistic picture. And so sometimes that did involve some web scraping as well. So one of the key ideas that you put out front at the, on your tutorial is the changes in some of the legality of web scraping. Can you touch on that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so the, the title of, of the tutorial, it's, you know, officially legal, so let's scrape the web. Um, it's definitely inspired by something that happened pretty recently. There's a great article out there that the Electronic Frontier Foundation put out. It's about 
this case that just finally had a verdict in the last fall of 2019. It was Haikyuu Labs versus LinkedIn. Okay. And basically, it was just kind of, it was a definitive, is web scraping going to be allowed or not? And we finally got kind of a little bit more of an answer based out of that case. Yeah. Yeah. And really, like, the reason why <laughs> there was a bit of a you know mystery and confusion about this for quite some time is really because of something called the Com- Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. And that was something from like the 80s, but the act is written in kind of a really broad sort of way. And so it's been used for lots and lots of different types of cases. So people weren't really sure how it applied to web scraping. So this case finally, you know, kind of... The web really changed a lot since that time. Yeah, it kind of finally gave us some direction on how that could be used. Yeah. Cool. Do you think the original, like some of the stuff that was in there was really pre the web and kind of more of like generally about people doing more hacking and things like that? Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Originally, the CFAA was was aimed more toward hacking behaviors that, you know, kind of were happening more and more frequently in the 80s. Yeah. But the law was written in such a way that's so broad that it's been used for things like people launching computer worms and even like cyberbullying and people logging in under their company's passwords to look up somebody that they know personally. Oh, okay. You know, the law has just been used in so many different ways because it is quite broad. That makes sense. That's good to to know that at least there's some divisions now happening where you can look at what should be something that's similar to users just looking at the web and being able to automate some of that uh, via web scraping. Yeah, that's right. So so the final case is kind of talking mostly about publicly available data, okay. things that you could just, you know, read by launching your browser. But there is still some murky areas if you do have to log in with some kind of password, uh, especially if you're trying to log in with somebody else's password. There have definitely been cases that have gone the other direction in the past. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. I guess we could dive right in and, and just kind of talk about some guidelines and uh, principles of web scraping and some different areas I wanted to touch on. But maybe we could start off with what would be good projects for people to look at with doing web scraping and reasons for them to approach this topic? Yeah. I mean, can I say anything? (laughs) I think really anything. (laughs) I mean, no. Sure. Whatever they're interested in. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly. I mean, there's so, I mean, just think about how much information is out on the web. There are tables of sports data. There are dollar figures about how much apartments are being rented for. There are tons of different text data that you could be using for natural language processing projects. So I really do think of web scraping as very empowering in that now you have access to all the different information that you can find on the internet and you're able to collect that in an automated way. Yeah, cool. What's your tool of choice as far as doing web scraping? Yeah, so the, the thing actually that's in my tutorial, that's really um, those are really the packages I use requests to get the HTML from from the internet. And then uh, Beautiful Soup is, is definitely my go-to for parsing that information. Nice. So initially with using requests, you're setting up this ability to grab via a request, you know, get the body of the web page itself. And then you're ingesting that into like a Beautiful Soup object. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay, cool. And then from there, that's when you start to figure out how to parse it and (laughs) kind of go through it, right? Yeah. And then the real fun begins (laughs) because developing strategies and trying to figure out exactly how to get, you know, that one piece of text that you want. And that's, that's the real fun of it for sure. Yeah. So that's kind of what interesting part of it is it's like, how do you 
find the elements that you want? Like what are, what's a good, you know, set of techniques for finding those separate elements? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is definitely potentially tricky because, you know, every website is different. You know, a lot of, a lot of them are structured similarly, but you know, a lot of them are different. I think kind of the main, two main approaches that people take, either looking for unique attributes, for example, IDs that have been assigned to tags or even, you know, classes, if you can find a specific item that has a specific type of a class, those those are kind of like the first thing I try are looking up by attributes. And then, you know, if that's not working, then trying to navigate the DOM, like using those, you know, using the position of, of the uh, information I'm looking for to my advantage by looking for like parents or children or sibling or those kind of things. So cool. That kind of gets us into a little bit of the nitty gritty and the idea that could be construed differently from a Python aspect of like, we're not talking about classes as far as Python or IDs as far as Python. Right. (laughs) You're actually talking about HTML at that point. Exactly. And so how much HTML knowledge do you need to get through like a basic (laughs) to dive into web scraping? Like how much do you think someone should know? Yeah, that's a good question. Because I, you know, I don't think you necessarily need to be so expert at HTML that you're writing your own web page or anything like that. But you do have to have the foundations because otherwise you're not going to necessarily know what to look for. Right. The tutorial that I gave, I did include a little bit of basic HTML and it took about 20 minutes of content. I, I wouldn't think you'd need a whole lot more than that. Yeah, that makes sense. So that kind of goes back to use the term DOM. Uh, what does that stand for? Uh, the document object model. Mm-hmm. And so that is a model or a tree of the layout for a website. Again, if it's properly structured. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. Exactly. Exactly right. So yeah, thinking about kind of the HTML itself in a tree-like structure is is where you're really going to reap the benefits of, you know, locating things by their uh, position on the page. Yeah. Okay. And so depending on how someone's structured that information and they'll have, you know, divisions which you can use to kind of look at. And that's when you kind of get into this idea of it can have a, a class, which I guess can be connected to the CSS of it too, like the the styling. Yeah. Right. Okay. Definitely. Definitely connected. Okay. So you feel like there isn't really a need to necessarily take a whole course on HTML and CSS to kind of dive in. Yeah. I mean, certainly if you have that knowledge, you know, you're going to be in an even better position, but I wouldn't think you'd necessarily have to be super well versed though. I will say, you know, I have built my own web page in the past and I think that's a great way to kind of like skill up in HTML is to just try it out and build your own pages. Yeah, that kind of practice always helps. Yeah. And then the other tool that you're using quite a bit is looking at the page itself and then using inspect. Oh, right. Yeah, sure. Yeah, definitely. So that helps you develop your strategy. So whichever kind of browser you're using, I often use Chrome, but Firefox would totally work something like that as well. You can basically inspect what kind of HTML is powering that page. And so that's the way that you can kind of start to develop your strategy. Like this little piece of text I want to collect actually is tagged with this ID. And so now I can go back to my code and implement that and go ahead and grab that information. Yeah. And so that's usually like something where if the developer tools, like in like a program like Safari, Chrome usually has the developer tools ready to go. Mm-hmm. You can practically just right click on a spot in the web page and have that information show up. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. You should be able to, you know, whatever information you're interested in, you can right click on that, click inspect or inspect element, and then you should be able to actually see what code is powering that. 
So it seems like it's not, it makes it harder if a web page isn't structured well, but it doesn't make it impossible. Um, I guess it would be, depending on if you're going to go across multiple pages of a website, then that structure is going to be really crucial for you to be able to kind of continue your search, right? Yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah. I mean, if you just wanted to get some information from one page, I mean, you might not even, you know, develop a whole web scraping strategy. You might just use requests, pull the HTML and then cut out the part (laughs) that you actually need, right? Right, right. Um, But if you do want to scale that up and you want to build an entire web scraping project, you're probably going to be relying on the structure of the site itself to make sure that you can kind of automate that process. Yeah. So I was thinking about that. So like if it's timely based information that you're wanting to revisit or luckily have an automated (laughs) tool revisit it for you, then that's where you really want to kind of look at those strategies where it it can kind of go in and find that updated information again and again or go. Yeah, absolutely. Or go across multiple pages. (laughs) Yeah, right. Or, you know, even if you're even if you're just building project based on one time point, but you need to visit like a thousand or maybe more 5,000, 10,000 pages, right. then you're definitely going to want some kind of structure there. Yeah. So I was thinking about that. Like what are, if someone was trying not to get frustrated, <laughs> I, uh, on real Python, I created the video course for the request package. And one of the common things I see people do like almost immediately is they start using what they've seen just sort of briefly. And I'm, I'm literally hitting an API on GitHub and, and using a lot of these things and it's an API. So it's a very, it's a very, uh, you know, it's an endpoint of a website that is very well structured for requests to be able to talk back and forth with it. Mm-hmm. And they'll take my techniques that I've been showing and then they'll just, throw it at a normal like web page <laughs> and they're like well it doesn't respond to me and i'm like <laughs> and it's just a matter of really understanding well you know it's you're not really talking to per se an api and so i, I think about that where right. to get somebody started on the right foot and I, I started to answer in the comments like okay we'll try these sites try these things and and then they actually will have like you know written guidelines and, and tools for like how this API works, you know, kind of like the whole four developers <laughs> portion of that. Mm-hmm. And I think about the same thing, like if you're starting out in web scraping, like what's, what are good examples of sites that are, are going to be well-structured that people could try and practice? Oh, this is a good question. Yeah. Um, that's a good question. There's actually one site we use at Metis a lot. And I think the reason why we use it is because it's so well structured and because it has pretty generous policies as far as how much you can scrape, right? Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's called a boxofficemojo.com. Oh, cool. So basically, yeah. So basically, it's just about movies. There's various movie data. You can look up how much a movie has made in its history, um, you know, what its runtime is, its release date, all of those kind of interesting pieces of information. And it is really well structured in that, like most of the pages look pretty similar to each other. Um, yeah. <laughs> nice. So you're able to like, let's say you're going to do a study of, I guess it could be what directors have worked on, you know, their particular projects and things like that. Does it go to those kind of metadata type of yeah. information about the movies? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Or like, or like what actors like to act in similar films together, like who's been appearing together a lot or something like that. I could see a really cool like graph kind of project based on that. Yeah. A full on Kevin Bacon <laughs> kind of thing, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Okay, cool. And then in your 
uh, tutorial, you go into doing stuff on Wikipedia, right? Right. Yeah. Wikipedia is another great place to practice. I would definitely say <laughs> Wikipedia is one that you don't want to request too much information from. I believe their guidelines are one page per second or something like that. But you do want to be very slow in your scraping of information from Wikipedia because, you know, if you're not and you end up getting blocked from Wikipedia, that would be a really sad thing that you couldn't access Wikipedia anymore. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> An example of that is if somebody you know went and set up their request portion of their script to just keep hitting page after page after page. To avoid that, you suggest putting in pauses. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, definitely. And I talk about this quite a bit in the tutorial as well, that you should really be adding in regular pauses. And this is probably good advice for pretty much any site that you are trying to scrape. It's really just about, you know, respecting that server and realizing that, you know, you are sending a request and they are sending you information back. And if you're just requesting a lot of information really quickly, you can really overload that site's resources. And so you want to try to avoid that. It could end up getting you blocked and it could end up just kind of being a you know, <laughs> creepy thing to do. You just really don't want to be a bully like that, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. So what does that look like if somebody were to get blocked? Is it like just the, you get like a return that completely just says, sorry. Yeah, yeah. You might start seeing, you know, any kind of number of errors coming back. Okay. That you just don't get the HTML at all. You get an error code and said, but keep in mind, you know, sometimes you can get blocked it could be an hour, it could be a day, but you might get blocked forever. Oh, wow. That's possible too. And that would mean that your IP, even when you're actually a human using your own browser, you wouldn't be able to access that site. So that's that's the part that we definitely want to avoid. Yeah, you definitely want to be a good citizen yeah. of the web. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so that's one to be careful with. Right. And, and that makes sense, you know, because it's sort of a public project in the sense that they're looking for donations and there isn't really a, a business model underneath Wikipedia. So something to be a little more careful with. Yeah. Do you have any other suggestions? Any other sites? Yeah. that are just good ones to start with. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, I think there's a site called like sports reference. Okay. Um, that has a lot of different sports statistics. That one seems to be pretty good. And there are various scripts. If you're interested in like analyzing TV movie scripts or, you know, TV scripts, those kind of things. Oh, okay. I'll give you the language stuff, right? Yeah, exactly. Which is something that I've done in the past for, for NLP sort of work. That one's called Springfield Springfield, I believe. <laughs> That's funny. I guess because it's such a common city name. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, but actually, I think it's a site out of UK. So I'm not sure why it's called, oh, uh, why it's called Springfield. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Too funny. So this is something that I, I was wondering about with the structure of the sites. At some point, as you're thinking about going to like multiple pages, you had mentioned this in your talk also, or your tutorial, that what can happen is if, if you get blocked or if there's an error in your script is that you could lose your data also. So that's another advantage of maybe putting pauses in or potentially yeah. saving as you go between each one of these grabs. Is that right? Yeah, you absolutely want to save as you go. And that's, that's what could happen. I mean... It's not even just a matter of just getting blocked, but you know, if the site structure just happened to change a little bit, or um, if you had encounter any kind of error at all, it's possible that your code can completely stop, and then any data you've scraped so far could completely be lost. So I would definitely recommend, you know, not only just putting in the pauses and being respectful, but also just saving whatever information you have 
And that I usually recommend, um, you know, every, it kind of depends on the site and how much gather data you're gathering, excuse me. Sure. But probably every, you know, maybe 50 pages or so, I would save that information, either writing it to a CSV or um, maybe saving it as a pickle file. Okay. In setting up your tools and doing this, I know the a very popular tool for doing all this would be in Jupyter Notebooks as far as like kind of walking through that. Is that the tool that you use for doing your exploratory parts? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I de- personally, I definitely start out uh, I usually start out in Jupyter, uh, just trying to see and make sure that I've got the right syntax for looking for the different pieces of information. But I would say I usually, once I've got a good scraper going, and I know that this is like working on multiple pages, I'll usually put that into a script so that I can just run it from my terminal and just just have it running uh, else, elsewhere. Nice. Yeah. And that would allow you to like potentially set it up for scheduling too. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another RealPython video course. It's about a topic that may be confusing for new learners. It's titled Defining Main Functions in Python. In the course, Rich Bibby takes you through creating this starting point for your scripts or applications, and he helps you to understand topics like what the special name variable is and how Python defines it, why you'd want to use a main function in Python, what conventions there are for defining the main function in Python, and what the best practices are for what code you want to put into your main. I think it's a worthy investment of your time to understand this vital entry point for your Python scripts and applications. And like most of the video courses on RealPython, the course is broken into easily consumable sections, and you get code examples for the techniques shown. To check out the video course, you can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the newly enhanced search tool on realpython.com. So I guess one of the key things that you're going to get into, obviously, is, you know, finding the elements of the page, the things that you want. And we kind of went down that road just a little bit, but you were talking about the document object model, the the DOM. When you're trying to find elements that you may need to, unfortunately, have to look around for elements around other elements. Mm-hmm. So what, what are some techniques there like that help you with that? Yeah. I mean, I think the kind of most common way that I see this done is that you will notice that there is some uh, text on the page that is near the text you want. So, so for example, maybe in that Wikipedia example in my tutorial, you might notice that like the mean household or the median household income is labeled median household income. And then the dollar figure is right by that. Right. So you might actually look for that text you know, and, and, and the nice thing is you can actually look for that text and it doesn't matter necessarily what kind of tag or what kind of element it is. If you can find that text itself, then you can use whatever element it is part of to look for the next element, which is actually probably the dollar figure that you want. Yeah. So you can kind of just find the, the neighbors of all, <laughs> yeah. all these items. It's almost like doing a search right on the page. You're just looking for text that you actually saw and that, that is nearby. Yeah. I guess the next big topic would be okay so you've collected all this information and it's you know in a text format right mm-hmm. <laughs> pretty much everything you're going to pull out of utilful soup is going to be a text string yep. of the html itself so what are practices that you have for kind of getting it to a point where it's like more usable data yeah. No, I mean, this definitely kind of varies depending on uh, how you're actually going to use the data. I mean, a lot of times you'll want to convert numbers to, you know, 
you know, string numbers into actual numbers, right, in Python. So sure. maybe, you know, converting things to integers or floating point numbers, things like that. And the data that you're probably going to get web scraping will be kind of messy. So it's actually interesting. And, and most people, this is kind of why they don't like web scraping. I actually think it's fun to have a challenge, right? Um, sure. You know, <laughs> so like, you know, you might have dollar signs that you need to strip out or commas or even some like non-printing characters. You might have some kind of like Unicode stuff oh, on the page sure. that you actually need to get rid of before you can convert it into, let's say, numbers. Okay. So would you use like regular expressions? Would that be something useful? Yeah. Okay. I use a lot of regex. Um, and I think that's kind of where I started scaling up in regex was really because I was doing a decent amount of web scraping. And that was kind of like why I needed to learn more about regex. Sure. Yeah, I would definitely say regex is a top tool for dealing with that. But there are some, you know, not nice Python things. If you're just trying to replace certain characters, you can just use replace, you know, those kind of um, simple sort of methods. Yeah, so a lot of the string methods, like I, that's yeah. another course that I did, is a whole <laughs> deep dive into all the types of things and how you can look at you know the end of the string, the beginning of the string, you know, you can yeah, look, look for characters in the middle of it and stuff like that, and try to find all the yeah, exactly all the things that are not like letters or what have you or numbers. Mm-hmm. Are there other tools that you use for cleaning? Um, I guess the other thing that you might come across and we need to be aware of are dates and times. Oh, sure. Yeah. And in Python, you're going to want to convert those to date times because you're probably going to, you know, either want to bucket things and and have kind of a more high level. For example, like if I have the date and the time of something, maybe I actually just want the year, right? Okay. And so if I'm trying to like change the time scale of the problem, then I'm definitely going to want that as a date time so that it's easier to work with down the road. And do you use outside packages or are you using some of the built-in stuff for dates? Yeah, there's there's some there's some pretty nice built-in sort of Python stuff to do that. I did actually start looking into a couple other date time parsing packages recently. Uh, I was actually this weekend kind of exploring the various different ones to see which ones worked for me. So, for example, like DeLorean or Maya, or there's all kinds of different date time packages out there. What would they add that the normal date time stuff doesn't have? Yeah, those those are more, what I was finding is that they're going to be more useful for me for things like shifting like time zones and doing arithmetic and those kind of things. Oh, okay. So that's kind of a little bit later. But some of those um, do have kind of more lenient parsers for, for daytime strings. Yeah, some of them being a little bit more focused on that than others, but yeah. Okay, so they could look at the raw text of a date and yeah. be able to turn it into a, a better daytime object without... Exactly you having to do as much wrangling. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, sometimes, and it, you know, it's totally fine to do all this stuff with like, you know, your native sort of Python uh, code, but sometimes you'll have to provide really explicit instructions. For example, in this string, the year comes first and followed by the month and then followed by this, this comma, or, you know, you have to provide the exact pattern for it to be able to detect that's the daytime. Right. Uh, some of these other packages are a little bit more lenient about what they will recognize as a daytime. Yeah, cool. I was thinking about the the issue of losing your work as you're going along. Do you have any examples of that happening to you? Not so much to me, but my students, oh my gosh, I feel so bad for them. Okay. <laughs> I feel so bad for them. You know, they have a limited amount of time to do their projects, you know? Right, sure. And so losing days worth of data, it's just, it's really 
sad. <laughs> you don't want to do that. You want to avoid that at all costs. Because the other thing that can happen, just kind of going along with that, let's say that you did scrape a bunch of different pages. You sent a lot of different requests out there. Maybe you did hit your limit. You can only request so much information per day. And you happen to lose all the information that you got the previous day, right? So you're losing time along the way too. Like it might not be that you can just automatically redo all of your work. Sure. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and now you're potentially in a hurry <laughs> yeah. and, trying to, and trying to scramble to get everything back. And you're more likely to put yourself in a situation where you get, get yourself blocked by by trying to rush through all of that there. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you mentioned briefly as we were talking about example sites, that there are sites, unfortunately, that may require a little more work to get into. And I was dealing with this. I was working in a marketing department for a bank and we had an outside vendor and everything. We were trying to automate things, right? So we were like, it'd be really great if we could have it just automate this process of going to this website and grabbing this information and, and you know, pulling it back down. and we started to look at other packages and I know you kind of touched on them at the very end of your tutorial, but is that where you start to move into something like a a selenium? Yeah. Yeah. And this is kind of, I feel like a lot of websites are heading this direction and it's going to become more and more important. So anytime that the site is dynamically generating and loading content, and by that, I mean that they're hitting a database, they're pulling information and inserting it. Maybe it's a personalized recommendation or something that needs to be generated on the fly. Any of that kind of information requests in Beautiful Soup is probably not going to cut it okay? because you do have some like dynamic elements. So Selenium is usually the way that you go for that. So examples of that would be some of the new things like React and uh, other JavaScript packages. JavaScript, for sure. Yeah, we see a lot of JavaScript sites. Um, Just think about like YouTube search results or Uh, one that I bring up often is like opentable.com. Like if you're going to make, you know, check out the different restaurants in my area, those are going to be kind of some of that content is going to be dynamically generated. So what would Selenium do for you? What is it? What is it adding? Yeah, so it's it's um it's pretty different. So Selenium is actually if you're running it in its kind of original form, Selenium will actually launch a browser for you. So me, I often use the Chrome driver version of Selenium because I like Chrome. Okay. So it'll actually launch a Chrome window, and so because that's being launched, the content will actually fill in. All of that dynamic content will actually go ahead and fill in, and so sometimes like the the most simple examples of using Selenium, all you really have to do is load the page with Selenium. Then you can still use requests and beautiful, or excuse me, the you'll get the HTML from the driver, the, the Chrome driver, and then you process it with beautiful soup like normal. So maybe even launching with Selenium would be enough to like pull in all that dynamic content. Okay, so adding that additional like import statement in your script of like, okay, we're going to start with Selenium. It's going to open up a browser page and that may be enough, like you said, that it because it was dynamically going there and not just using requests to grab it, yep. it's now populated an instance of an HTML thing that Beautiful Soup can sort of ingest then. Yeah, exactly. And then the next level of that would be like if you wanted it to like click on things and stuff like that. That's part of it, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And so that gets to like the you know more fun components of Selenium. You can actually use Selenium to interact with the page. So clicking on things or... okay typing or yeah various you can actually even like 
do all kinds of interesting things with Selenium. Those are kind of the most common, clicking on things or typing uh, as well. Yeah. Right. So typing would be if, like in my example, I have the credentials to go to the site, but I don't want to be <laughs> doing it every day myself, I could have it programmed so that it not only you know clicks on this, it fills in the, the credentials that I need to be able to access this particular site that I need to automate it, and then click the button to submit or whatever. Yep, that's right. So you kind of create like a script of sorts, right? Yeah, exactly. So all of this like interaction with the browser is being done automatically through a script, which which can be really nice, you know? Yeah, it can be really nice. Yeah, cool. Are there other tools like that that kind of expand on the world of web scraping? Um, one other tool that I haven't actually got to play around with much, but I have heard other people say, you know, has been helpful if they have a large scale web scraping project. Okay. Package called uh, Scrapey. So it's just a separate package that you can kind of design your web scrapers um, and then, you know, launch them with Scrapey. Actually, Scrapey even offers cloud services. If you didn't want to do the scraping on your local computer, you could actually launch that through their cloud. I do, I do think that's a paid service, but it is kind of interesting that they have that option as well. Oh, so you're kind of creating a bot of sorts with that. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, that would be really useful if you wanted to like index, you know, various sites or those kind of things uh, or wanted to follow lots and lots of links, build like a little spider crawler. Um, you could do that with Scrapey. Yeah. I think that's the one that I was playing with about, a, I don't know, two years ago. I have a, I've worked in environmental science and I was helping my client like try to get a bunch of governmental forms like PDFs mm-hmm. that he needed to basically, he wanted to catalog them because it was hard to find this information. And so I, I use the Scrapey to basically help me automate the downloading of all these PDFs. And then it also, I was able to like write the script. So it would, I was able to name them yeah, <laughs> and like, you know, create them in, in folders and stuff like that to yeah, sort yeah. of gather this information so that he could have it instead of have to constantly go out on the web and grab it. So cool. So you're saying you were working on some new date time packages. Is there a particular project that you're kind of working on right now yourself? Oh, um, that was actually for something that I am interested in that's coming up, an event. Pi Ohio okay. uh, has recently submitted, you know, hey, call for sub- submissions because they are going to be doing right. a virtual uh, thing this year instead of an in-person. They're actually going to be doing like five or 10 minute talks this year. So it'll be nice and quick. Okay. Um, so I was actually kind of exploring the various packages to see, would I like to give like a brief tutorial on one of these packages? Have you been to lots of conferences in the last several years on this? You know, it's, it's kind of fun. I've been to a few. I went to a few last year, but I was really planning on 2020 being my big year for conferences. <laughs> Which, there goes that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that was my plan too. <laughs> I know. So actually, I did um, PyCon, which, you know, the tutorial yeah. um, ended up being virtual. And then um, ODSC East, the Open Data Science Conference. Oh, okay. I did that one also in April, but that was all virtual as well. It actually turned out really great. It, you know, everything went smoothly and according to plan, but it was interesting to give, you know, a live talk just from the comfort of my own home. <laughs> yeah. So that one was not pre-recorded. Right. Right. Okay, cool. How long was that? Um, that was about a 40 minute talk, 45 minutes, something like that. Yeah. Cool. Do you have a background in like public speaking and stuff like that? Oh, um, well, certainly in education, um, that is what I do, you know, the last couple of years. Right. You know, I was in academia for quite some time. And I would say that that's a skill that kind of carried over from academia. 
we often gave talks. And so I've been to a lot of like mathematics conferences and things like that, just a little bit newer to the data science scene for conferences. But and that's what your PhD is in. Right. It's in uh, mathematics, right? Yeah, exactly. So my PhD is in applied mathematics. And I also went on to do a postdoc at Ohio State University. So I was in the academic scene for quite some time and delivering lots of technical talks during that time period. What made you switch out of academia? Is that okay if I ask that? Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's definitely a many, many, many factors. I guess that's probably what a lot of people who, who made the switch would say. Yeah. You know, a lot of personal and professional sort of uh, reasons. I think for me, mostly it came down to, you know, I wasn't necessarily super excited about the idea of needing to apply for funding or really excited about the idea of needing to move anywhere in the U.S. that I happen to find, you know, a professor uh, position. So, oh, yeah, yeah, there, there were definitely big, big roadblocks for me in that and those those two reasons. Yeah. <laughs> were you doing some programming throughout your applied mathematics? Definitely. Yeah, Journey? definitely. Okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, most I would say a lot of applied mathematicians uh, are going to be doing some kind of coding these days. Right. Yeah. But the packages that the kind of language that most you know, at that time, everybody was using like MATLAB was a big one. Sure. That's probably what I first learned on. And then eventually switch over to Python when I was doing my postdoc. Yeah. This is a question that I've seen occasionally in the comments inside of the real Python, you know, Slack channel. People have wondered about that, you know, journey of kind of switching over. And uh, my last episode that I guess will, in this case, will be two weeks ago, talking to Kyle Stratus. And he really sort of like, fell in love with the programming side of it when he was kind of switching out of academia. And he's like, actually, I really enjoy this part of it. Was there a particular moment for you where you looked at, I mean, you already mentioned like kind of the whole track of having to like find work and so forth, you know, and, and continuing that. But what was some of the reasons that you switched into more of the programming side in Python? Yeah, I mean, I think for for me, it's going to be kind of the opposite side of data science. I really like programming, of course, but sure. From that math background, when I was doing my postdoc, I took a course, actually just sat in on a course. It wasn't like for a grade or anything, but I just sat in on a course because I was interested. And that one was like a statistical learning course. Okay. So it was really kind of the fundamentals of data science, but from a math perspective, like really starting to think about, you know, hmm. matrices and, you know, the loss functions and really kind of putting the math to it, to how you could explore data really rigorously and mathematically. So that's the part that I actually really, why I kind of let, you know, that led me to data science was really kind of more the math angle. Of course, you know, programming has followed suit as well. But yeah, I still still get really excited about the theoretical components of data science. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Well, actually, that kind of leads into some of my weekly questions here. Like, what are you excited about in the world of Python? And again, it could be a package or an event or hardware, what have you. But what, what's something that you're currently excited about? Yeah, I mean, definitely that PyOhio thing. I'm really excited about kind of seeing people distill concepts into five to 10 minute videos. I really want to see what people come up with. I think that's going to be really cool. Yeah. And I'm excited to hopefully participate in that as well. And then, you know, the other thing that I'm always on the lookout for like new NLP, you know, packages and things to do with natural language processing. So I actually saw a talk. Uh, it was at Open Data Science Conference by Ali Vanderveld. And so she's at ShopRunner and they actually developed a package called Tonks that they, it's like a deep learning model where you can have multiple different objective tasks and you can combine both image data as well as um, text data. 
to like to meet your objectives. So I thought that looked really cool, and, I, and I'm definitely wanting to check that out. Nice. I have a few you know people that I've talked to on the podcast, but also a friend from Real Python that were involved in Python Pizza. I don't know if you saw that. No. It's another conference that happened um, about a one month ago, and it was very similar, sort of lightning round kind of, I think of, uh, you know, 10 minutes, I think it was maybe 12 minutes, something like that. And so there were like several talks every hour. And it was mostly, I think it's based mostly in Europe, you know, for me in the US, <laughs> I had to like wake up at like 3am to watch <laughs> some of my people talk that I knew. <laughs> and it was very cool. But it's all, you know, luckily, with your paid thing, everything was recorded. And you can kind of go back and watch it, which, um, and then they'll make them free after that. But it's, it was really kind of neat to see, you know, what kind of information can be covered in these sort of little short snippets and, and kind of like uh, get you excited about a topic so that you can kind of jump off and go into. And it's something I'm trying to do with the podcast a little bit is like try to have multiple topics and multiple like kind of jumping off points for people and you know, provide all the links for that. So I'm definitely excited to include the open data science stuff and check it out myself to <laughs> see what, what the talks are on that. Is that one that on YouTube? Um, I don't think so. No, Open Data Science Conference, they are still keeping their video. I don't know if they're going to put those up on YouTube. I know the Pi Ohio videos are going to be on uh, YouTube. Okay, cool. So, yeah, yeah. What was the date for the Pi Ohio? Um, I think it's in July, um, mid-July. Okay. So then I had a couple other questions that I'm working on as kind of like a regular thing. And one of them is, what is it that you want to learn next in Python? Oh, um, well... Again, there's always there's always like a ton of things uh, on my radar. <laughs> sure. I, you know, one other thing that like we haven't talked about yet that I am, you know, I always keep thinking I'm going to do more with um, are data visualizations. Oh, yeah. So I really also love data visualizations. And, you know, last summer I was really into Plotly. So I was building lots of different Plotly things and trying to think about interactivity and those sorts of stuff. Yeah. But one thing I haven't done yet that I'm still thinking I might at some point is think more about like map data. Oh, okay. So for example, like geoplotlib or using geopandas or those sorts of things. That's something that's always been kind of on my radar. Yeah, I played with Plotly a little bit. And then I did a course on on Bokeh. Yeah. And I really liked it. And I liked a lot of the interactivity that that it provided. You know, some of the stuff where you can have these sources where as you click on things, it can kind of affect the other items in it. You know, it's like you can kind of do some filtering. And then I jumped on that and went into a whole JavaScript area with that myself where I was like, yeah, me too, actually. Yeah. <laughs> because like yeah. the D3 landscape is sort of massive. In fact, <laughs> like you, you look at uh, Plotly and Bokeh and a lot of these things, are, a lot of them are you know kind of coming from that because there's so much sort of groundwork that's been done. And, you know, it's already the web. So a lot of it's going to be JavaScript. Yeah. So, so there was this uh, tool that I was using that kind of combined a tool from Square. It was called CrossFilter. And the idea with CrossFilter is that it would allow you to create dimensions. You would sort of create this index of all the things that you want to look at. And then you would create dimensions that you could kind of compare things across. And then it allowed for really dynamic filtering inside of it, which I thought was really cool. And that was one of the talks that somebody did at Python pizza <laughs> is they had created a package that used it like kind of their take on cross filter. And I still need to learn more about what they did there. My only problem was that they were, a lot of it was powered to be able to do real time mapping kind of data, like stuff that you were just talking about, but it required that you had this 
massive machine that you know had like a it, it actually <laughs> ran on a graphics processor you know and i don't yeah. have that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's one of those things where you get when you get into like really large data stuff or you get into really big mapping and visualization stuff that you may need this sort of back end to be able to do real time of that and so i was like Definitely. well i'd like to see at least what they created because i really enjoyed the cross filter thing i was using it for banking data it was like a deposits thing where you could click on a particular branch and then it would like just show the information for that or you could click on the region and would filter and just show the, that region and so i would have all these pie charts that would like you know basically spin and resize and <laughs> it was really kind of fun kind of animating all of it yeah very uh very much of a dive into JavaScript though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I recently was like, okay, I'm just going to learn D3. I'm just going to do it. <laughs> so I did, I did yeah, that's huge. Like, create a couple widgets. And I was like, wow, this takes so much time. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, so I mean, yeah, maybe back to Python for a while. <laughs> yeah. I'm hoping to maybe talk to some more people on the data visualization thing. And uh, if you have suggestions for people, let me know. Cause I, I yeah. There's the one package Altair I was thinking about looking at. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so that's something I'm looking at down the road to to add as we go into it. Because I I really like that part. Like I, I, I like the visualization part, but I also really interested in the interactivity part. Like I really want to provide yeah. non-programmers with the ability to manipulate the data somewhat, you know, and um, yeah. look at it and change it and stuff. Well, I mean, the thing for me with like the interactivity, it's just that you can show so much more data that way, right? Like it right. completely changes the game, right? You think about what you can show on a static chart. It really shouldn't be showing too much, right? Like usually, you know, you have to present this to somebody and it's going very quickly and you have to create really clean, simple visuals. Understandable. But when someone's able to like interact with your data, you can really, you know, have a lot more components and a lot more information to share. I think that's really cool. And you were doing a lot of that and and kind of playing with it in Plotly. Yeah, Plotly so far. I actually, you know, Tableau sometimes even. Sure. You know, not a not a Python thing, I know. but yeah. <laughs> got to try. Got to use the tools that are available. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, that makes sense because I mean that's. That's the thing, you know, it's like in the end, it's like, well, who's going to consume this? You know, do I have to put it out? Uh, you know, like one of the yeah. recent tutorials that I've been kind of looking at is someone doing stuff with, um, I think it's called open pixel or, you know, it's basically uh, an Excel thing. Mm -hmm. And I was looking at that and there was like a way to generate all those kind of things inside that are somewhat interactive inside of Excel, um, you know, creating charts and, and stuff like that, yeah. but also it, it doing, uh, you know, when you, the <laughs> values are changing automatically, conditional formatting, is that what it's called? Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, and so it was um, yeah. showing you how you could kind of set that stuff up and create the rules for it, and I was like, well, yeah, there's a lot of people that you're going to work with that are not going to be able to run your Python script, or, you know, again, with Plotly, what's nice is that you're, you know, it's creating a web type of tool. Um, but sometimes that was even hard for, mm -hmm. for me with in certain, <laughs> certain places where I would work would be so locked down that you couldn't even really, you know, put something out. And that was considered even just out on the web, even if you had like login credentials, they wouldn't for security reasons allow people to go to it. Yeah. So sometimes it was like, go back to Excel, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I think that space is also really cool. Even, even you know, non-professionally, like you think about how many people are now consuming data, you know, just in like 
journal articles, you know, if I'm looking at New York Times or NPR or something like that, there's so many more people now that are comfortable with playing with like data widgets. And I think that's kind of really cool that um, that's become a lot more mainstream these days. Yeah. You're, you're talking about the the things that they're putting in there were parts of like the New York Times or whatever website are now interactive, right? Yeah, exactly. That like just that just people in general, not necessarily technical people, um, but just you know the, the population is becoming a lot more sort of data literate and really uh, craving those sort of interactions with data. I think that's pretty neat. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. So this is a, another new one I'm working on, which is uh, I'm wanting to call it hidden Python. But they're not necessarily need to be hidden. They're just things that are maybe lesser known, you know, tips or tricks that that you could maybe share in your experience of you know doing data science or just Python in general. Yeah, sure. Um, let's see. One thing that like it's not revolutionary at all, but sure. <laughs> one thing I can think of is actually the function called transform that people use in pandas. Yeah. So that one, I think gets overlooked a lot, but it's oftentimes like exactly what some of my students or what I, you know, want to do. Basically, you're doing kind of like a group by, but then filling in those values for every single cell so that you're not really changing the dimensions of your data. You're just like getting those aggregates by group and, you know, creating those values for like every single cell, um, you know, that you have. Yeah, I think of um, the pivot tools that are there too. Yeah, those kind of things as well, like being able to pivot. And, and if anybody's coming from um, an Excel background, realizing that they can still do these pivot tables, right? I think is, is, is a little bit of lesser known thing that people don't always think about that they can do. Yeah, uh, that whole pandas area is something I want to dive deeper into <laughs> on the podcast. Yeah, I enjoyed working on it a lot. Yeah. I really want to thank you for coming on the podcast and, and talking to me. Excellent. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. All right. I want to thank Kimberly Fessel for being my guest this week, and you really should check out her tutorial. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast in your favorite player. And if you like the show, leave us a five-star rating and a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey. I look forward to talking to you soon.